I hope that you can sense the presence of the Lord in this place. Amen. So we're thankful for his presence being with us today. Well, if you've been around for just a little while, you know that we've been going through the gospel of Mark since about January, looking at the topic of King Jesus. And today we continue that theme as we look at the message, true greatness, true greatness. Now, we hear much about greatness uh, when someone passes away, like uh, Muhammad Ali recently talked about in the boxing world, he was the greatest. Or even uh, recently, Ralph Stanley in the bluegrass world, uh, talking about one of the greats. Or Pat Summit, who just recently passed away. She was the uh, women's basketball coach from Tennessee, one of the greats of all time. And you will hear that on the, the news, that one of the greats has passed. Or in politics, we hear about greatness. Make America great again. Or we've always been great, or whatever the case may be. You hear these things over and over. But you know what? You can find any number of quotes or books about what greatness is or how to attain it, all you have to do, if you really want to know how to be great, is just type it in Google. Amen? Man, they'll be glad, be glad to point you in the right direction. Well, you know, the answer to that, however, as to what is true greatness is not found by various people on the Internet, but rather it's found in the Word of God and seen in what Jesus has said and how he lived. And so let's learn from him today of what true greatness really is. Amen? That's what we want to do. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32, going through 45, and in honor and reverence to the word of God, if you'd please stand if you're able uh, as I read this for you uh, today. Mark 10, starting at verse 32, going through 45. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the 12 aside again, began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I'm baptized with you, that I am baptized with you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reading of the word of God this morning. And and Lord, we pray, Father, that you would have your way uh, in this time, in this hour. 
Lord, we pray for those of us who are here in this worship center that you are dealing with and your presence has been made known already today, Father, and we pray that you would just continue to to prick our hearts where we need to be challenged, where we need to be convicted. Uh, Father, that you would bring about the encouragement or comfort that's needed in our lives, the call upon our lives. We also pray for those who may not know you as Lord and Savior that uh, this would be that hour. Uh, Father, we also pray for those that in their Sunday school classes during this hour throughout our entire campus. We pray, Father, that you would continue to move in hearts and lives before anyone leaves today. They'll know they've been in the presence of Almighty God. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we're in, in coming to this part of the, the service where we hear the message from you, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be open and receptive. Make our hearts tender, Father, for where we need to be and what we need to do as we look at you and hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would have your way in every heart. Father, I pray that you would use me as your servant, as your instrument, Lord, here. And may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, here's the picture of true greatness. The picture.
the way. So Jesus is knowingly walking into the jaws of suffering and death. And as he goes before them, what we see here is the determination of our Lord Jesus Christ, even in the face of the difficulty that is to lie ahead for him. But what we know is that Jesus has counted the cost. The focus, his focus is set. His mission is before him. His calling is clear and he is obedient to the task. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. That is his task. That is his calling. That is his mission. That is his focus. And that is the cost. And this road that they are now on is leading them to Jerusalem and is leading to that difficulty. And what we find in the scripture here is that Jesus is going before them. Jesus tells them here in very vivid, very vivid detail what is about to happen. As a matter of fact, this is the third time that he tells them what is about to happen. But here, it's even more detailed than the other two times. And he uses a future tense here, meaning that these things certainly will happen. You notice there in verses 33 and 34 that it tells us that he says, the Son of Man will be betrayed, that they will condemn him to death that they will deliver him, that they will mock him, that they will scourge him, that they will spit on him, that they will kill him. So what we understand here is that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he has perfect foresight of what is about to take place, not only in death, but all that he would endure and all that he would suffer. And yet we see in the scripture that Jesus went before them. Now, pastor, you've said that a couple times already. Just what are you getting at? Well, I'm glad you want to know because I want to tell you, if you will think that through, Jesus knows what is going to happen in Jerusalem. And yet he is the one who is leading the way of these disciples going before them. In other words, he is not dragging behind. He's not behind the pack saying, you know what? You guys just go on. He's not slumped over his shoulders. You don't get that picture of him being downtrodden. But what you see is a determination in him that he is going before them, that he is leading the way, even though with with this determination, even though the difficulty that he knows is ahead of him, he went before them. And his determination causes those who are with him, it tells us, to be amazed and fearful of what is happening, of what is coming. Jesus came to die, but he was determined because he knew the end result. Amen? He knew the end result. You st- he, verse 34, it says, and the third day, Jesus says, and the third day he will rise again. In other words, Jesus kept the end result in view. God's plan will be brought to its final details, and Jesus says he will rise again. 
In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it tells us about Jesus having this end view where it tells us there that looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, friends, Jesus knew that he would rise and return to the Father on the throne and be exalted in glory. He went before them, even in the face of great difficulty, he had the end result in view. And we see the greatness of our God who led the way with this determination in the face of such great difficulty because he kept the end result in view. Y'all with me this morning? Second point, the picture of true greatness we see here, not only in his determination in the face of great difficulty, but we see patience in the face of great peril. Jesus has just told the disciples of the great difficulty that is coming. And now we find James and John, two of the disciples, indeed two who are in the inner circle, if you will, they come to Jesus with a request. In verse 35, it tells us here that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What James and John are saying to Jesus as they're coming to him, they say, Jesus, we want you to say yes before we ask. Your kids ever do that to you? Mom, dad, I want you to say yes before we ask you this question. What are you going to say? Hmm. This, this causes a red flag, doesn't it? So they say, say, Jesus, say yes before we ask the question. And he said to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And then they lay it out on the line there for him in verse 37. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Hmm. As we look at these two men, James and John, we see here that as they're asking this question, they, they, there's, we have to see the self-interest and the self-ambition of these two disciples. They want to have, in other words, James and John want to have the best seats in the house. They want to sit in these positions of authority, which would be by the king next to Jesus. So in co- according to the world's standards, to sit on the right and the left of the king would make the person who is sitting on the right or the left to be a very powerful person. Now, they've just asked this question, and we have to just sort of rewind a little bit and realize what Jesus has just told them in verses 33 and 34. He had told them about what he is going to endure and the difficulty that he is going to face and the peril that is before him. But we have to notice the patience of Jesus with these disciples. He doesn't say to them as they say, uh, Jesus, we want you to say yes before we ask, and uh, we want to sit on your right. You know, Jesus knows what what they're going to say, and you notice that he doesn't say, "Um, uh, you want to start over with that? Or you want to think about that before you finish this question? Or if he'd been like many of us, he'd probably had about enough to say, okay, just bring the lightning. I'm done with these guys after what he is about telling them what he's about to endure. But that's not the case. And friends, listen, aren't we so grateful for the patience of our Lord with us? 
wrath of God. Whenever it talks about the cup, even in the Old Testament, it talks about divine judgment or the wrath of God. Jesus is saying, I am going to drink from the cup of wrath of God. I will have to deal with, I will take that cup, the divine judgment. And the baptism, the baptism he is baptized with is to be overwhelmed, to be immersed in the destiny that was planned for him by the Father. It is to be submerged in difficulty, submerged in this calamity. It is something that he will endure. And he reveals in those verses that he will do this voluntarily because he says, are you able to drink the cup, drink the cup that I drink? He is, he is drinking the cup himself. It is a voluntary uh, drinking of the cup, taking the wrath of God. And he asked them, are you able to do this? And they respond, oh, yes, we can do that. Now, that was noble, possibly very courageous for them, thinking that maybe in this kingdom and that they may have to fight or something. We don't really know what they're thinking. But Jesus then turns the corner and he tells them that, yes, you will indeed face this. But what we understand is Jesus is talking with James and John. We see his patience with them and he teaches them and he knows that they will face a similar fate. And as a matter of fact, you may remember that James became the first apostle to be martyred and that John was persecuted and exiled to the island of Patmos. And so they don't know what they are asking or what they are saying, but Jesus here, as we look at this, is loving and he is patient and he is long-suffering toward them. There is great peril just beyond where they are as they're heading this way to Jerusalem. There's great danger that is just ahead. And these disciples are only thinking about themselves. But now the other disciples hear what's being said. It tells us there in verse 41 that they begin, the 10 heard it and they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now that's being very nice in the New King James Version. It literally means that they were indignant with James. They were irate at James and John and what they are saying and what they're asking. And we have to wonder, James and John who've been on the, in the inner circle, we have to wonder as Jesus has just told them of the things that is to take place, what in the world are these two guys thinking? Amen? I mean, what are they thinking? Well, they're probably thinking what a lot of people think. It's that old sinful nature within us that says to us something like this. You know, the Lord takes care of those who take care of themselves. As a matter of fact, some people even believe that this is in the scripture that says that the Lord helps those who help themselves. Friends, if you think that's in the scripture, I'd like to see the verse. Show me the reference because it is not there. The Lord helps those who help themselves. So the disciples were probably thinking, you know what? There's going to be a right and a left hand of Jesus, and somebody gets to sit in those places. Why not us? It might as well be us. And the Lord helps those who help themselves. But friends, listen, this goes completely against the Lord's picture of greatness. That is a dependence on ourselves to make things happen and then wanting the Lord to bless it. 
And yet, in the midst of this, we see our wonderful, patient Savior, this beautiful picture of his patience with his people. When they do not fully understand, but rather we see his guidance and his leadership to reveal what is really happening. Friends, listen, how often, how often are we seeking greatness that is being veiled by saying something, well, I want to make a difference. I want to do great things for the Lord. That's great. But if you peel that back, in reality, is, the, is saying that, is it for selfish reasons? Are we wanting greatness in order that we can be seen in a certain light or that I can meet some personal goal? You know, it may sound good, maybe on the outset, but the motivation behind it comes from a heart that is still very much self-oriented and self-centered. We constantly, listen, we constantly need to be checking ourselves against this thing called self-centeredness and a selfish ambition that we think we want to do something for the Lord. In reality, we're wanting to get the praise and the accolades ourselves. We need to be very careful of these things. And that's what we see here. And even in the midst of that, the Lord is very patient. And oh, friends, oh, oh, praise the Lord for his patience. Praise the Lord for his mercy and for his grace. And may we have eyes to see the truth and be open to what it is that he is constantly teaching us. Amen. And just what is he teaching us? Well, he's teaching us here in, these, in this passage of Scripture as the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written to, for us. He is teaching us this picture of true greatness. And we see the third point is that we see servanthood in the face of great sovereignty. Servanthood in the face of great sovereignty. As the disciples are struggling to understand true greatness, Jesus gives them all a lesson. The 10 hear what the two have said. Jesus recognizes that they're, they're upset with each other. And so what he does is he gathers them in and he brings them together. He calls them to himself, it says in verse 42. And what he does in the next couple of verses is he contrasts for them greatness He wants to show them that there is a difference. He contrasts greatness according to the world and greatness according to God's kingdom. And friends, they are not the same. In verses 42 through 44, here's what he says to them. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Jesus says, so in the world standard, the rulers, the rulers who who they think are great, they lord it over them. They are dominating and oppressing their subjects. They're exercising authority over them. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. One commentator I was reading this week, he said these words. He said, the lost world is driven by selfish ambition and a lust for raw power and position. In the world, the more important you are, the more people serve you. But in God's kingdom, however, the more important you are, the more people you serve. 
And so what has happened here is Jesus has given them a picture of what it is true greatness is he turns the tables, he turns the measurements upside down. He says to become great, be a servant. To be first, be a slave of all. The word servant is the word diakonos, where we get uh, the word deacon from. It's one who volunteers useful service to other people. A slave is someone who has forfeited their own rights in order to serve any and all. A disciple, listen, a disciple, are y'all ready for this? Let me tell you what a disciple is supposed to do. Are you ready? Say yes. This is going to blow your mind what a disciple is supposed to do. Here it comes. Are you ready? All right. A disciple, I just don't think you're ready. A disciple is to serve others. That blow your mind? A disciple is to serve others. But here's the thing. Not only is a disciple supposed to serve others, a disciple is to serve others voluntarily and sacrificially. Uh-oh, pastor. I can handle this serving thing, but, you know, you're talking about me stepping up to the plate and me volunteering instead of somebody having to come to me and ask me to do something. Well, I don't know about that. Or the sacrificial, you know, I got my priorities, and I'm not sure that I can do everything that really needs to be done. Excuse me? A disciple is to serve others voluntarily and sacrificially and not serve his own interest. Pastor, that is just radical. Why you say something like that? Because here is our example. Verse 45, Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. <laughs> just, just let that ruminate for a minute. Just, let that, just think on that for just a minute, okay? The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. What's that tell us here? The sovereign is servant. The all-powerful king of all glory, the creator who has all authority says that I am to serve. And I'm serving by giving my life a ransom. Jesus here is showing us that he is the sovereign. We know that he is a sovereign, but that he is a servant. Jesus himself, look, Jesus himself is the supreme example of true greatness. He is the sovereign Lord of all, and he came to serve. Anybody who says to you, well, you know, I've served my time, I'm, I'm done, uh, or it's somebody else's time to serve, or whatever, wherever you want to go with that, you need to go back to, well, if, it was, if Jesus was willing to lay aside himself and to serve, what makes us better than Jesus? Y'all with me? Jesus himself is the supreme example of true greatness in that he was a servant. He has come, look, he has come to give his life a ransom, the Bible says. 
Ransom is a price of release, a payment to release slaves or captives from bondage. It tells us here that he came to give his life a ransom for, meaning in place of, instead of he took. Look, he took our place. As lost people, we are in bondage to sin and captives of death. But the Bible here is telling us, Jesus says that he paid the ransom. Jesus Christ, who was fully man and fully God, who never sinned, he paid the ransom price for our freedom and he paid the penalty, watch, that he did not owe to free us from a debt that we could not pay. Our redemption was complete as he gave his life for us. He has served us, if you will. He has served us by giving us what we have needed. He has laid aside his rights to meet our greatest need, which is to be reconciled to holy God for our salvation. Friends, Jesus shows us true greatness. It is servanthood in the face of sovereignty. In other words, he who is worthy of all honor has laid it aside to accept the scorn and the ridicule for us. He who is the sovereign king of the universe, he stooped down and he became the servant to meet our greatest need. It reminds me of a couple of stories in the scripture, but two different thoughts here about greatness and the pictures of greatness. The first one, and they both revolve sort of around this here. This is a basin. Well, not really. It's really a thing from the, uh, you know, a mixing bowl from the kitchen. But today we're going to call it a basin. Okay? Y'all with me? So, th- so it revolves around this idea of a basin. There's two stories there that, that we can sort of see greatness. The first one is Pilate. If you remember what happened with Pilate, the the Jews had handed Jesus over. And even though Pilate found no fault in Jesus, Pilate gave in to the crowds and he wanted no part of who he was and what they were doing. And so what Pilate did is he went over, the Bible doesn't say it basin, but we can imagine that's what he did. He went over and he washed his hands. He said, I don't want to have any part of it. His blood is not on me. It's on you. So what was he doing here? He was looking out for his own self, and he had Jesus crucified. Now, by the world's standards, Pilate was great. He had great power. He was in a position of greatness. So he was a great man who had great power and authority, and people would do whatever he said to do. In some eyes, it was a picture of greatness. But then there's another picture that we have of a basin. Before Jesus was betrayed and arrested, Jesus, who is the king, who is the creator, who has all authority, who knows what is about to happen before his arrest, before his betrayal, before his crucifixion, he takes the basin of water and he goes over to the 12 disciples and he stoops down with their dirty feet and he puts their feet in and he washes their feet. Now, can you just wrap your mind around that for just a moment? The creator of the universe, the sovereign God of all, is stooping down, washing the dirty feet of people that he knows is about to betray him and deny him, and he's about to be crucified. But Jesus stoops down and washes their feet. 
It is the sovereign being the servant. And in so doing, he gives us the example. Friends, listen, we are to, he tells us that we are to do as he has done. We are to be that kind of servant, that selfless servant, that loving, unconditional servant. But if you want to know the truth about it, that being that kind of servant goes against our nature. It goes against our fleshly nature. We are not inclined to truly selflessly with pure motives serve others. To truly serve like Jesus, well, it's a divine enablement. It's not natural, but it is supernatural. And so how is it then that we are able to serve the way Jesus has taught us to serve? Well, we go back and we remember that Jesus was able to have determination in the midst of, in the face of great difficulty because he had the end result in view. Amen. Sometimes it's not easy to serve selflessly, but friends, when we have the end result in view, it certainly does help to know that this is not our home. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The end result is in view. I know that there's coming a better day when I will see Jesus face to face. I I can serve easier and more selflessly if I know that one day I'm going to be in the presence of my king who knows what I'm doing, who knows the motivations of my heart, but I know that I will be with him forever one day. Not only that, but also we see that we are to be open to his leadership just as he was patient with James and John and he was teaching them and he was guiding them and he was helping all the disciples to learn and understand. Friends, we need to be open to what God is trying to teach us and because he is patient with us and he is teaching us more fully about himself and how we are to be more filled with who he is. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, it tells us this. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, that you would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the width and the length and depth and height to know, watch this, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be filled with the fullness of God. And as we are filled with the fullness of God, knowing his love and being, receiving him by faith, being grounded in love, then we are able then, enabled by him to be able to serve the way he has taught us to serve and to be that example, serving others voluntarily and sacrificially. But it has to begin somewhere. And it begins by accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, who gave himself for your ransom. It's hard to wrap our heads around that, but he knows you and he loves you and he he gave himself for you, for your ransom. And we come to know him by step of faith, acknowledging that we're sinners in need of a savior and turning from our sin and turning to Jesus, which is repentance. 
saying, I'm sorry for what I've done, O Lord, and then embracing, believing with all of our heart that he is God's son who died on the cross, arose again bodily from the grave, and professing him as the Savior and Lord of our lives. It's a step of faith, repenting and believing in Jesus, trusting him by faith. If you've never done that, today's the day of salvation. Give your heart to Jesus because he is calling out to you. Maybe you've already done that in your life, friends, and we need to understand that as his children, as Christians, he has called us to be those servants, to follow his example. We're not striving for greatness, watch, but we're striving to be like Jesus, amen? That's what we're striving for. And as we're like Jesus in God's kingdom, that's what greatness is. And so we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves, going back to those two stories about Pilate and Jesus, and ask ourselves, who am I more like? Who are you more like? Who am I more like? Are we like Pilate, where life is about looking out for ourselves, watching out for our own self-interest, looking out for our own necks, looking out for our own desires? Or are we more like Jesus, the one who laid himself aside and served others so that people would come to the Father? Who are we most like? It's rather convicting, isn't it? But he calls us to be like him. He enables us to be like him. What are we doing about it? Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this moment, we know, Lord, that you have called us out, set us apart to be your servants. And Lord, all over this building, we have to confess that we fail by, in the call to be more like you. And we have to confess that too often we're more like Pilate looking out for ourselves instead of sacrificially giving of ourselves in service to others. Oh God, may you increase and may we decrease. In our hearts and our lives, Lord, may you be glorified in and through us. And may you help us to just get out of the way of ourselves that we may serve the way you have taught us to serve. That we may be like Jesus, the sovereign who has laid himself aside and to be the servant. May we be the servant that you want us to be. Lord, we are constantly amazed at your love for us and that you did all of that for us for God the Father to be glorified in and through us and for our salvation. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and work in our lives at this moment as we come to this time, that we need to surrender ourselves to you completely, that we may truly strive to be more like you, Lord Jesus. If there are those here who don't know you as Lord and Savior, that this would be that moment where they'll say yes to Jesus that they would surrender to you as you're calling them to yourself. But for those of us, Father, who know you as Lord and Savior, 
May you use this time to help us to hear your voice dealing with us about the obedient areas where we, we need to be more obedient to you, where we're being disobedient, places where we have not surrendered, where we need to surrender, places where we need to serve, where we've been more interested in our own desires and our own ways. God, may you bring about the conviction in our hearts and may you help us to rise above and to be the people you've called us to be individually and as a church. And Lord, where you're dealing with people about decisions of maybe transferring membership to Mount Pleasant or being baptized or whatever it is you're dealing with people about, Lord, just let us be obedient to what you're calling us to be, to, to be and do for your glory. But Lord, may you have your way in our hearts and our lives And when we walk away from here today, we'll know that you have done a mighty work and that we have been in your presence. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.